Okay, let's start it up then. English 325 here for John Smith's General History of Virginia. Hard read, folks. Weird language. Weird language, hard read. We'll make some sense of it today. Um, but a very hard read, just in terms, like, strictly in terms of how it's written. Um, uh, you know, it's deceptive, right, the way that we've become the class, because the Iroquois creation story was, you know, a, a story from long ago, but the version that you read was published in the 1820s. Okay, the Navajo creation story, a story from long ago, but the version that you read was published, like, the 1990s, or the early 21st century. The Columbus letter, something from long ago, but translated into a contemporary idiom, basically, right? It was written in a different language and was translated in kind of contemporary times. Uh, same thing with the De Los Casas, right? So that was translated from another language into a more contemporary idiom. So this is really the first thing that you've read that is essentially untouched from the time that it was written. That is to say, it is language from 1624. That's, very, that's why it was so hard. And you're like, oh shit, this is very different than what we've read before. It's because everything that we've read previous, while it's quote-unquote older, the versions that you read are actually quite recent. This, no. 400 years ago. Period. Right? It's old. So the language is difficult. Understandable. Makes perfect sense. We'll make some sense of it today. Okay? So... Let's begin. Look at that guy. Oof. That's a beard. That's a beard that you want. If I could do that, I would. In what ways is John Smith's general history theatrical or literary? This is the first question I ask you guys. Like before we get into the content as such, what ways is the, the general history, what we've read of it, theatrical or literary? So let's read a couple of passages and, and talk through this idea. And it's actually, I, I should, like, I'm just kind of being silly mentioning what he looks like and how he's looking at us and how he's all put together, but that actually bears really materially on the answer to this question. So he says, being thus left to our fortunes, it fortuned that within ten days scarce ten amongst us could either go or well stand such extreme weakness and sickness oppressed us, and thereat none need marvel if they consider the cause and reason which was this, and I'll read the next one, and we'll talk about them together. He so demeaned himself amongst them, as he not only diverted them from surprising the fort, but procured his own liberty, and got himself and his company such estimation amongst them, that those savages admired, admired him more than their own kuyukasuks. The manner how they used and delivered him is as follows. So, the question I'm asking is, in what ways are these passages theatrical or literary. I'm not really asking you what's happening in these passages. I'm asking you about the form of them and the rhetoric employed. In what sense can those be said to be literary? Yeah. I was going to say they're literary because he's telling what's going on exactly. It's not like he's saying what might have happened or what, like he's writing it out himself. Okay, he's definitely telling us a story. Yeah. Right, he's definitely telling us what happened in the past and what's happened to him, right? That can be literary, but it could also be just historical, right? But there's something that makes this not just a dry history. There's something that gives it that kind of like imaginative verb or that energy or that theatricality. So just to go off of Emma's point, yeah. Well, in the question, it talks about how he was like, uh, 
alive at the same time as Shakespeare. Yeah. And I looked like I was looking more into that, and it was like a time where he was writing a lot of plays. So like to appeal to his audience, he's probably up playing what he was writing about, and like to gather more interest on it. Sure, precisely. And this kind of aligns with what I said. That's exactly right. That's one thing to think about here is that one of the reasons why he's writing it more like a story. Right? One of the reasons why he's writing it more like a story is that he's really intentionally trying to grab the reader. And this is actually something that we're going to get to more particularly in the next two passages that we read. Right? That there's something about this story that's supposed to be attractive to the people who are reading it. It's not just a dry historical account. Okay? What about the form of these first two passages gives us that sense? That it's not just a dry historical account, but that he's actively, to go back to Emma's point, that he's actively trying to tell us a story. What's common between these two? Yeah, Rasheen? He's like introducing um, a conflict. Yeah. And, uh, and then he does what? At the end of the introduction to both of these quote-unquote conflicts, right? He says, here's the reason. Here's what happened. Go ahead, Ren. And he says, like, is as followeth. Right, is as followeth, which was this, right? So Roshin, he's, he's telling us a problem, right? Something has happened. He wants to explain it to us. But instead of just explaining it to us, John Smith says, this is what happens. This is how it follows, right? I feel like it's kind of like in like some movies where like they start talking about how the end happens, and then it's like, but here's how it happens. Yes, right? So this is exactly what he's doing. He's structuring it like a story. Right? It's not just this kind of like chronological plot. He's giving us the problem or the conflict, and then he's saying, hey, let's rewind a bit, right? And talk about how it happened, or this is what occurred, right? So what he's doing is he's kind of like um, actively engaged, strategically engaged with writing this text as if it's a literary story, right? He's not just giving us this dry historical account. He's doing all of these strategic things to make it more something like entertaining as opposed to just simply informative, right? And we can see that in a really kind of basic and simple way through the is as followeth or which was this, right? The introduction of the next part of the story. It's very self-consciously literary. It's very self-consciously invested in creating a narrative self-consciously invested in creating an error. Okay? So that's what's happening in those first two passages. He's setting up problems, and he's self-consciously invested in creating a story out of those problems that will entertain us. What about the next two? We'll read them in tandem and talk about them. Uh, the new president and Martin being little beloved of weak judgment and dangers and less industry and peace committed the managing of all things abroad to Captain Smith. Captain Smith is him. He's writing in third person, which is strange. Um, again, Smith had his two men slain, whilst himself by fowling sought them victual. He's looking, he's hunting, fowling, he's seeking food, right? Whilst himself by following sought them victual, who finding he was beset with 200 savages, two of them he slew, still defending himself with the aid of a savage his guide, whom he bound to his arm with his garters and used him as a buckler. What's a buckler? Isn't that like a shield? A shield, yep. Used him as a buckler, yet he was shot in his thigh a little and had many arrows that stuck in his clothes, but no great hurt, 
till at last they took him prisoner. What's happening in these passages? What makes these passages sound like something that's literary or theatrical? Yeah. He's attacked by like this huge number of indigenous people, yeah. and then he makes it out that like he was barely hurt at all. Yes. So okay, let's let's think about what's actually happening here in this second passage that we just read. Smith is out in the wilderness with two of his men. He's hunting, searching for food. Da, 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 da. The two men die. He suddenly comes upon 200 Native Americans. Okay? He's got one Native American with him as a guide, and what does he do? This man who's a guide just helping him along. Suddenly he grabs him. He wraps him up on his arm, ties him to his arm, and uses him as a human shield as he fights off 200 men. He just gets hit in the thigh once. No big deal. Right? Some of the things happen, like he gets some, some clothes, cuts on his clothes, but nothing really bad happens, and then they take him prisoner. Right? He's like an action movie superhero here. Of course this doesn't actually happen. How does he, like, get away, or not get away from 200 people who are trying to kill him? He's an action movie superhero, right? He's using a native person as a human shield as he fights back 200 Native American men who are intent on destroying him. Okay? He's the rock of the 1620s. And I say this kind of facetiously, but kind of not. Like, that's intentionally what he's trying to do here. Is The Rock the right one? Is it Jason Statham? Who's the action superhero? The big action... What's that? Both of them are right. Both of them are right? Okay. Okay, I don't know my... I'm not, not totally in on the, pop, on the pop cultural references, but, like, he's The Rock. He's, he's the action movie superhero of this time period. He's consciously fashioning himself in that way, okay? He's literally using his indigenous guide as a shield, tying him to his arm and fighting back an onslaught of 200 people. It's like the equivalent of like when the superhero or the, the kind of uh, action movie star of the 21st century, like, like uh, there's like 10 different like assassins coming towards him and he just kills them all with like really well-timed kicks to the neck. Just one after another, right? We're like the Bourne franchise when he wraps up a newspaper and kills a guy who's trying to kill him with a knife by like sticking the end of the newspaper into his neck. Anybody see that movie? In any case, John Smith is a superhero, right? He is an action movie star. That's what you're meant to take from this passage. What about the first one, though? What does it show us about Smith? What is Smith trying to tell his readers about himself in that first passage? Who eventually gets all of the power and gets all of the people to agree to be led by him. The president and Martin, people hate them. They're of weak judgment. They don't work very hard. So instead of those people, who's the person who's got all the talents and all the skills who should be managing everything? Yeah, him, John Smith, right? So it works in tandem with the next passage, right? The idea here is that what we're supposed to get about John Smith from what we read in this text 
is that he is the hero, right? He is the hero of his own story. He is the adventurer archetype, right? He is this literary or theatrical stock character, okay? He is a real man, and these things more or less do actually happen to him, but he self-consciously fashions the narrative in such a way to make it seem like he is the hero of his story. Okay? What are other effects of making this story into something like an action-adventure movie? Actually, it kind of goes back to something that we said earlier. What else <coughs> might happen as a result of self-consciously making the story into something like an action-adventure narrative, as opposed to a dry story? I feel as though, like, writing his own story, he has the power to control, like, how people view him. Yeah. So, like, if he writes it as he's this, like, action hero, then people are going to, like, look back and view him as something. Totally. Just like what we talked about with Columbus, right? Mm -hmm. That, like, Columbus, as he's writing those letters, is very self-interested, and he's really thinking about how people are thinking about him and his actions. John Smith is doing the exact same thing, right? Not only, by the way, in what he writes. Like, not only his self-presentation comes through not just in what he writes, it also comes through in this image, right? Where he looks like a swashbuckling gentleman who's like in control, not a hair out of place, right? His hand on his sword at the ready, looking piercingly into your eyes through the frame, right? All of these things are meant to give us an impression of John Smith as the hero as powerful, as authoritative, as the star of his own show. Okay? All of these things give us a sense of the book as something more than just a dry historical account, but something closer to a story, a narrative. Okay? That doesn't necessarily mean, although it might imply, that we distrust what we read. Right? It might imply that we distrust a little bit more what we read. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it might imply that we distrust a little bit what we read, or we think, hmm, why might John Smith be doing this? Why might he be relating this action in this way? Is there a self-interested objective here? Is it not just about telling his reader what happened? Is it more about giving his reader a particular sense of who John Smith is? Okay. Any other thoughts on these? I love it, the image of this, holding the native captive man, guy, on his arm as he fights off 200 Indian people who are trying to kill him. Yeah. Can you like exaggerate things to kind of like to make it sound like he more? Yeah, I mean, I suspect that he's exaggerating here, right? Exactly. This is exactly what's happening, is that once we realize that one of the objectives of the text is not only to tell us what happened, but also to give us a particular sense of Smith as a person, what we necessarily have to do is we have to read moments like this, or moments we'll talk about later, as potential exaggerations, right? Or if not exaggerations, then kind of like um, modifications of the truth for a self-interested purpose. Yeah. Okay, so in what ways is John Smith's narrative theatrical or literary? Well, in terms of its kind of narrative strategies and its rhetorical strategies, it's heavily invested in telling a story, right? And plotting a story in a particular way so that it's not just a dry historical account, right? He's basically self-consciously telling you that he's telling a story, 
which was this, is as followeth. He's using all of these strategies to go back to Jesse's point that kind of um, show us or introduce us the nature of his narrative. He's also self-consciously fashioning himself as a hero and as a leader. He's talking about himself in the third person. He's contrasting himself um, as, uh, against other people who are weaker and more lazy than he is. And he's also exaggerating these actions that happen to him to make him seem as if he is a hero, right? That he's a stock character in something more like a novel or a play than in just a historical account. Yeah. I think that the writing in third person is like really important because like if he was saying like, oh, all of the, the managing of all these things were to me, then it would sound as if he was being narcissistic right. completely, but writing in third person makes it sound like, oh, he was this big hero, not me. Like, it gives it, that's exactly right, Jesse, it gives it a sheen of objectivity, right? Just a small little patina of objectivity, right? If he was to say me or I, yes, it like self-consciously has a sense of self-interestedness. But by writing in the third person, it gives, again, this sheen of historical objectivity, even though we know that it's not objective at all, that he's actually quite self-interested about what he's writing. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and comes really nicely out of just a close reading of the language of the text, which is great. Any other thoughts about that? Okay, these are weird, right? We'll, we'll work through this idea, and then the point of this next this slide that we're on right now is to kind of inform the one after it, okay? So this is a long quote that I'll read off, but basically the question I asked you on this slide and the next one is how Smith's description of the compass and the letter are similar to Columbus's. So I'll read this long one off and we'll talk about it. He demanding for their captain, they showed him Opechicano, king of Pamunkey, to whom he gave a round ivory double compass dial. Much they marveled at the playing of the fly and needle, which they could see so plainly, and yet not touch it because of the glass that covered them. But when he demonstrated that by that globe-like jewel, the roundness of the earth and skies, the sphere of the sun, moon, and stars, and how the sun did chase the night round about the world continually, the greatness of the land and sea, the diversity of nations, variety of complexions, and how we were to them antipodes, and many other such-like matters, they all stood as amazed with admiration. Notwithstanding, within an hour after, they tied him to a tree, and as many as could stand about him prepared to shoot him, but the king holding up the compass in his hand, they all laid down their bows and arrows, and in a triumphant manner led him to Oropax, where he was after their manner kindly feasted and well used. What's happening in this event, right? Just literally what's going on. King has been taken captive by the indigenous peoples of Eastern Virginia, okay? He's taken captive and he's brought into an audience with the king okay, of this particular tribe, the Pamunkey. Smith? gives the king of Pamunkey what? A compass. This compass, beautiful compass. And in giving the king of Pamunkey this beautiful compass, he talks through essentially what the compass does, what it means, and what it allows people like Smith to learn and to know. Okay? 
it looks beautiful, right? It looks like a jewel. That's cool enough, right? It's very strange that you can see the fly in the needle of the compass, but that there's a glass globe above them and so you can't touch them. The native people find that kind of incredible. In a literal sense, like unbelievable, they find it incredible. So it looks great. Like it's actual how it's made, it's manufactured is quite amazing. And also the things that you can learn from the compass and the things that you can know from the compass are quite incredible as well, right? After Smith talks through all of those things that come out of this compass, Smith tells us that all of the native people stood as amazed with admiration. How does that idea relate to what we read in Columbus? What sense of native people do we get from that first paragraph? Yeah? Um, that, like, I'm not positive. Yeah. But, like, that something, like, that's so simple to Smith, like, they're, like, just, like, they don't know what to do with themselves, basically. But, like, they think it's, like, so extravagant. So what's the implication? That's exactly right. What's the implication of that? That it's a compass. It's something that, generally speaking, like, Smith and his contemporaries use and know. They understand how it's made. They understand what it's used for. But when he shows it to Native American people, they literally can't understand it. They think it's a beautiful jewel, and they don't understand how Smith gets all of this knowledge from this thing, right? What's the implication of that? How is Smith asking his readers to understand Native, Native people? Yeah. That they're like really uneducated? Yeah, that they're yeah. uncivilized, yeah. right? That, they're, that they don't understand technology, that they don't understand science, that they are attracted to shiny baubles and jewels, right? That they can't conceive of this technological advancement. They cannot accommodate within their understanding of the world how something like a compass would exist. They just can't get it, right? If we wanted to put a really fine point on this, what, what Smith is trying to get across to his readers as it concerns Native people is that they are inferior, right? The fact that they don't understand what a compass is and what it does suggests to Smith that they are inferior, that they would stand amazed in admiration over a compass suggests that they are inferior, right? Okay, does that make sense? Yeah? That's the sense of native people that he wants to get across. That's just like Columbus, right? Just like Columbus. The idea in Columbus is that the native people, they reach out and grab the blade of a sword and they cut themselves because they don't understand how swords work because they don't have metallurgy, right? They're just inferior peoples. They don't have these technological advancements. So Smith and Columbus, in this respect, are working on the same wavelength, right? trying to get across to their readers that native peoples are inferior. Okay? What happens after that in the second paragraph? So they all stand amazed in admiration over this compass, but then notwithstanding, like they love the compass, it's great, but notwithstanding, they tie Smith to a tree, and they're about to kill him. And then something happens. They're all about to kill him. They're all another like movie set piece, right? Just like the having the Indian on your hand as you're fighting off 200 people. Another movie set piece here. 
They tie him to a tree, and ringing around him are a bunch of native people fastening their bows and arrows on him. Okay? And as they're about to let the string, I'm never like, I think like I've never done a bow and arrow. Is this like, as they're about to let it go, right? No, high school gym class I did, for sure. So as they're about to let it go, right, and kill Smith, what happens? The king kind of comes up into the middle of them, gets between the arrows and Smith, and holds up the compass. And when Smith holds up the, or when the king holds up the compass, all the other native people drop their bows and arrows. And instead of killing Smith, they feast him. That is to say, they don't eat him, they give him a bunch of food. They celebrate him. So what's happening as it concerns how we're supposed to think about native people in this second paragraph? What is the king doing when he, according to Smith, what does Smith want his readers to think? What is the king doing when he hold, holds up the compass and everybody drops their bows and arrows? Yeah. He's showing like the value of the possession he brought. Yeah, say more. Like why would sh hold, holding the compass up cause everyone to drop their bow and arrow? He shows the value. To but respect what he did for them? Like that's going to save their lives almost or something? Okay, yeah, let's talk through that a little bit more. Yeah. Carly, yeah. Are you going to say, like, if their king holds it up and they all, like, follow what the king says without kind of, like, thinking about it on their own? Okay, so it suggests, yeah, so it suggests that they just are, are following the orders of this one authoritative individual. Yeah, good. Yeah. Kind of, like, reemphasizes, like, Smith's suggestion that they're, like, inferior because, like, in Europe, a compass probably wouldn't save his life, but when it's right. he's dealing with the natives, it does. Right, exactly. Yeah, precisely. To put those ideas together, right? What this suggests, it's like the equivalent of now if somebody was like threatening your life and somebody intervened and it was like, check out this cell phone. It's the coolest thing. And then the person who's threatening your life is like, oh, no, 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 you're great. This is awesome. I've never seen this before. In fact, like, let me take you out to dinner. Right? Let me celebrate you. Okay? Yeah, what it suggests is that these native people are so enamored, so amazed by a compass, right, that they would, instead of killing Smith, they would let him live due to their amazement with this piece of technology. Right? It's almost as if they think of Smith as a god. Right? They want to value him, they want to cherish him because of this technological advancement that he brings to them. Again, this should remind you of Columbus, who says explicitly, they thought we were gods, right? This should remind you of exactly what's happening in Columbus, and then in a, in a weird way in De Los Casas, too, who says explicitly, they thought we were gods, right? Okay, so that's the description of the compass. It's completely similar to Columbus, because it presents for Smith's readers a perception of native peoples as technologically unadvanced, and inferior, and not only just technologically unadvanced and inferior, but literally incapable of understanding what a compass is or what it does. Incapable of having the intelligence to do so. What about the letter? This is a little bit of a strange one, but I want to spend just a minute on it. This is the next slide for people listening in. In part of a table book, he wrote his mind to them at the fort. What was intended how they should follow that direction to affright the messengers, 
and without fail sent him such things as he wrote for, and an inventory with them. So Smith is still captured. He takes out a piece of paper. He writes some things down. The intention is that the native people who, are, who have kidnapped him are going to take that piece of paper, and they are going to go back to Jamestown, and they are going to give that piece of paper to the other settlers at Jamestown. That's the situation that's occurring. Okay? Smith writes something down. He gives it to his native captors. The native captors are going to bring it to Jamestown and give it to the settlers. Okay? That's the situation. But when they came to Jamestown, seeing men sally out as he had told them they would, they fled. Yet in the night they came again to the same place where he had told them they should receive an answer, and such things as he promised them, which they found accordingly, and with which they returned with no small expedition to the wonder of them all that heard it, that he could either divine or the paper could speak. Okay, so what's the situation here again? At this point, the native captors have given that letter to the people at Jamestown. And they are returning again because Smith has told them that at this time, the people you gave that letter to are going to return. Okay? So the native people return at that time, and they are freaked the fuck out. Why? Why are they freaked out that what Smith has told them has actually happened? Yeah? Because it kind of gives into that idea that they saw them as like God says something and it happens, then he's like, actually a god. This is a, this, right, so they, the native people see the settlers as gods, but the important distinction here is not that he says something's going to happen and it happens, but that he doesn't actually say anything at all to the settlers at Jamestown. Instead, Smith doesn't say anything to the settlers at Jamestown. Instead, how do the settlers at Jamestown learn about what Smith wants to do? From the letter. From the letter. It gets written down. The message gets written down. So what are the native people amazed about? What makes the native people think of Smith and the other settlers as gods? The fact that they could like, talk without actually conversing. The fact that they can communicate over distances without speaking. That is to say, what makes the native people think of the settlers at Jamestown as gods is that they have written communication. Right? What kind of characterizes written communication over and against spoken communication? It's that written communication allows you to send messages across long distances in a way that spoken communication doesn't, right? So what the native people think here is, oh my god, these people are so technologically superior, they're almost akin to gods, to go back to Harley's point, because they literally cannot conceive of written communication. They cannot conceive of how a message travels across a long distance without it being spoken. Okay? So again, another, just in line with Columbus, another indication of native peoples as technologically, culturally inferior as uncivilized. Right? So the compass and the letter, both examples of that, of native people as technologically and culturally inferior. Okay, keep that idea in mind. Right? as we move to the next slide here, which is the last slide, but it's a really important one, about Pocahontas. So um, I'm going to move off of the slides. For people listening at home, I'm going to put the link to the YouTube video in um, the Blackboard site. So we're going to watch just two minutes of the Disney version of Pocahontas. And what I want to get out of this is that kind of traditional Pocahontas myth we have, right? 
what does Pocahontas mean to us as people in the 21st century? Who's, this, who's uh, watched this movie? You look at me like I'm crazy, are you? Like, what? I can't remember if I have. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were looking at me incredulously like, who hasn't? Like, all right. What is it? The Smith! They got him! Who got The savages! Savages? They captured him! Dragged him off! We had to take him! They hate you! How many were you? I don't know, at least a thousand! Bill Pig! Who is it? It's not the Queen's! I respect myself. But gold is as good as mine! We've got to save him! He'd do the same for any of us! Thomas is right! We've got to do something! And so we shall! I told you those savages couldn't be trusted! Smith tried to befriend them, and look what they've done to him. But now I say it's time to rescue our courageous comrade. At daybreak, we attack! What can you expect from filthy little heathens? Here's what you get when races are diverse. The skins are hedged, they're only good when dead. interesting but kind of beyond our purposes that I'll just mention is if you were to do like a close reading of that
piece of that film. What's so fantastic and interesting to me is that um, all of the similarities that the Disney illustrators are trying to draw between the Jamestown settlers and the natives, like the similarities in, in their songs and how they're like preparing for battle, the idea that like they're different from us and so they can't be trusted, how both of those groups say that same thing. What's really fascinating to me is that like one of the things that the Disney movie is really invested in is making us think that the Jamestown settlers and the Native Americans are both doing something wrong, right? That like they're equally at fault for what's occurring. That's kind of fascinating to me, but that's a little bit besides our point. Our point is this foundational American myth of Pocahontas. What does that movie tell us about why Pocahontas does what she does? When she runs up after being followed by the birds to the cliff face or whatever, after she runs up and puts herself in front of John Smith, who's about to be kind of um, brained, right? Who's about to have that club hit his head. Why does she do that, according to the foundational myth we have of the Pocahontas story? Why does she save John Smith? Not hard, yeah. I've never really seen it, but I've heard that they were like in love. Yeah. I mean, it speaks even more profoundly to the foundational nature of the myth that you've not seen the Disney story, and yet you know how to answer the question, right? Yeah, so like, the idea here is that Pocahontas, according to this story that we have in our heads, Pocahontas, who's the daughter of the king, of the people who are kidnapping John Smith, Pocahontas saves John Smith because John Smith and Pocahontas are in love. Right? John Smith and Pocahontas are in love. That's the narrative that we have in our heads. Why is that kind of a so, why is that such a foundational narrative? What does that tell us about early American history? What does that suggest? I guess like what I'm asking is kind of like, what's the ideological work behind that idea? What does it suggest to us about the relationship between native people and whites? I mean, basically what it suggests is that like all of this strife and conflict we've had, like we can get over that with love, right? Like all of these terrible wars and bad feelings we've had between native people and settlers, well, if we just loved one another, everything would be okay. And like that's what Pocahontas and John Smith show us. That's what they tell us, right? So it kind of like really smooths over a lot of the conflicts that happen in early American history in order to tell us a story that emphasizes reconciliation, unity, right? Like, presumably the children of Pocahontas and John Smith will be this new race of people who take from both communities and become this one peaceful, unified figure that stands in for America, right? That's all the ideological work that this myth does. That's all the ideological work that Pocahontas loving John Smith and thus rescuing him does. So what I ask you in this question is, to contrast that foundational myth, right, that we all know, with the actual source material, which is, you might not have even known it when you were reading it because the language is so hard, but this is literally the Pocahontas story. Like, this is where it comes from, okay? So read this off and we'll talk about whether or not it's actually love that motivates Pocahontas to rescue John Smith. At his entrance before the king, Smith, all the people gave a great shout, his is Smith. At his entrance before the king, all the people gave a great shout. The queen of Appomattox was appointed to bring him water, to wash his hands, having feasted him after their best barbarous manner they could. A long consultation was held, 
But the conclusion was, two great stones were brought before Powhatan, who's the king, uh, Pocahontas' father, and thereon laid his, Smith's head, and being ready with their clubs to beat out his brains, Pocahontas, the king's dearest daughter, when no entreaty begging could prevail, got his head in her arms and laid her own upon his to save him from death, whereat the emperor was contented he should live to make him hatchets and her bells, beads, and copper, for they thought him as well of all occupations as themselves. So what's happening here? Pocahontas saves John Smith. Right, they're about to beat John Smith's brains up. But what's the stated reason for Pocahontas' rescue? Why does the king accept Pocahontas' entreaties? What does he say Smith is going to do from now on? Yeah. Like make them things? Yeah. He's going to make hatchets, bells, beads, and copper. And then if we read this second passage, which we won't go into in detail, but he's going to send them guns and he's going to send them other resources. Okay. So what does that reveal about our understanding of the differences between the myth that we have about Pocahontas and the reality of this situation? So true, what I'm asking you is, why does Pocahontas save John Smith? Is Pocahontas going against the wishes of his father when she saves John Smith, or is she actually accepting the wishes of her father when she saves John Smith. What's happening here? This is basically a big ceremony, right? Think about what happened to John Smith when the compass was held up. It's just a big ceremony, and they've all decided to not kill him at that moment. Okay? Think about that ceremony in relation to this one. What's happening here? In the earlier ceremony, they hold up the compass and they all put down their bows and arrows. Did they ever really intend to kill John Smith in that moment? Right, maybe not. If we read against what Smith wants us to know, maybe what we think is they never really intended to kill John Smith in that moment. Maybe they were not really as amazed about the compass as John Smith proposes that they were. In fact, why might they raise up the compass and then spare John Smith's life? It might be because John Smith can do things for them, right? Not because they think he's a god, not because they're amazed at his technological superiority, but because he is useful to them, right? That actually might be why they don't kill John Smith with the compass, when he has the compass, right? This, again, to go back to the beginning of our discussion, this is reading this narrative in a way that John Smith doesn't want us to. Right? John Smith wants to emphasize himself as a hero. He wants to emphasize himself in distinction to the natives as superior. Right? But when we understand kind of the ideological work that this text does, what it allows us to see is that just like that compass ceremony, this ceremony with Pocahontas is um, play-acting. Right? So when John Smith is about to get his brains bashed in and Pocahontas runs over and jumps on top of him, is Pocahontas doing that out of an abundance of love and against his father's, her father's wishes? No. Why is Pocahontas doing this, to circle back to that first question? If it's not out of love, if it's not because she's going against Powhatan's wishes, why is Pocahontas saving John Smith's life? Because, yeah? Because he's useful to them, because he can serve, 
as an intermediary between Powhatan's people and the settlers at Jamestown, right? Because he is actually a powerful tool for those native people to get what they want and what they need out of this new colonial paradigm, right? They perceive in John Smith not some superior godlike figure, they perceive John Smith as a tool. And when Pocahontas runs over and covers up John Smith's head, it's not because Pocahontas loves John Smith and is disobeying her father, it's because Pocahontas is actually obeying her father by performing this ceremony. So what's the purpose of the ceremony then? What would be the purpose of pointing your bow at John Smith and then putting it down? Yeah. I feel like it's so he thinks that, I don't know, almost so he thinks that they spared his life. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to add to that? I was going to say just to like instill fear in him. Yeah. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I was pretty much going to say what they both said. Profound psychological trauma to have a murderous weapon pointed in your face and then to be dropped at a whim or to be almost have your brain bashed in and then to have it be stopped. Profound psychological trauma. So what we might actually think about what's happening with these ceremonies is what Powhatan's people are doing are saying to John Smith, hey, like, your life is in our hands, dude. Like, we could kill you at any moment. Any moment, we could kill you. So, what? You better help us. Like, you better do the things that we're asking you to do. Does that make sense? Right, so how it kind of like critiques or challenges our sense or our understanding of this foundational myth is that it reveals to us that Pocahontas doesn't do this because of love, right? She doesn't do this to obey her people or to disobey her people and go against her culture and her history. She does it in order to actually further her culture and her history, to preserve it, to provide her people with opportunities to engage with the settlers on, at Jamestown in a good position, yeah. And also, like, in, like, real life, wasn't Pocahontas only, like, 12 or 13? Yeah, yeah. In real life, though, it should be said that while she doesn't marry John Smith, she does actually marry another English person. And she goes to England, and, like, there are later pictures of Pocahontas that almost treat her as if she's white and things. But, yeah, she was very young, yes. This wasn't out of love, right? This was not love. This was actually out of a... Um, oh, oh, um, her, her desire to obey her father and to help her people, not to kind of like be a traitor to them, right? Our understanding of the Pocahontas myth as in, that says that Pocahontas loves John Smith and that's why she rescues him, that understanding is that Pocahontas is a traitor to her own people because she so loves John Smith. What the real story tells us is, in fact, Pocahontas is not a traitor to her people. Pocahontas is actually trying to support and protect her people by taking this action. So the question then becomes like, in this last kind of minute we have here, how do we read into this story what we've just read into it? Like on the surface, it doesn't seem to be the case. The point is that we've just read the compass ceremony and we've just read the letter moment in a way that allows us to confidently and with evidence reinterpret this moment in the way that we have, right? So we're not just pulling it out of thin air, we're using the text itself to provide the evidence for the interpretation we're drawing for this later on. Okay, cool, awesome. Yeah, you'll never live the same way again, now that you know the real truth of the Pocahontas story. I've blasted all of your youthful hopes and dreams. Love is an illusion.
and 